Listener production. Hello, Tom Tilley with you for the briefing. It is Thursday, January 20, which is one year since Joe Biden was inaugurated as US President. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. So Biden made some big promises on Black Lives Matter, COVID and climate change. So in this briefing, we're going to find out how he's tracking so far. First, Jan Franz here for the headlines. Now, Jan, have you still managed to dodge Omicron? Mate, I have. And you know what? I got my booster yesterday. So hopefully I'm going to be dodging it even more moving forward. (laughs) Fingers and all arms crossed. (laughs) Yeah, well, at least any severe symptoms, which is very good and, you know, very reassuring, right? Absolutely. All right, let's get into the headlines. We're starting today with some sad news and a candlelit vigil for nine-year-old Charlize Mutton, who was allegedly murdered, has been held. Charlize has touched many lives on on her journey throughout this world, especially within the school community where she was loved. Her bright, smiling face and her beautiful nature shone as bright as her spirit is now. Yeah, so hundreds of people gathering outside the gates of her Tweedheads public school on the New South Wales-Queensland border to remember the girl who was allegedly murdered in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Yeah, so a 31-year-old Justin Stein uh, was arrested in Sydney on Tuesday night and he was charged. And this was after search parties scoured bushland in the Blue Mountains and found a child's body in a barrel. Now, police said yesterday that they had intercepted phone calls where they heard Stein talking about buying sandbags and fueling a boat to be launched at a dock in inner Sydney. We are very much um, in the early stages of this investigation. Um, Things will unravel over the next week or so um, to find a cause of death, um, a purpose for a death, and try and identify exactly what happened. So that's Deputy Police Commissioner David Hudson there. Just a a horrific story. Shalice lived in Coolangatta, where that vigil's being held, and she was on holiday with her mother in the Blue Mountains when she disappeared last week. And the reopening of schools will be at the top of the agenda at today's National Cabinet meeting. Clinical Professor in Paediatric Infectious Diseases David Isaac says that the risk of children getting the virus from school remains low. Even with Omicron, the risk is not very high. The risk is much higher of catching COVID at home in the household and from other contexts than within schools. Yeah, so National Cabinet comes after Scott Morrison did a press conference yesterday, Jan, and it was an interesting one. He he stood up to acknowledge the pain people are feeling over Omicron, but there didn't seem to be any apology for, for his government's failings or any real new solutions. Well, yeah, look, Scott Morrison's been accused by his critics and his opponents and certain columnists and journalists of being somebody that passes the buck and and doesn't really take much responsibility. And I think, you know, for the Labor Party, at least, yesterday's press conference was just another one where he kind of dodged the bullet and and didn't take any accountability for the situation. The critics you're talking about were saying he's just responding to focus groups and there'd been a, a poll come out, you know, just earlier this week showing that the government is really going backwards and this might have been a response to that, but without any concrete solutions on how to improve the situation. And staying in politics of sorts, former Attorney General Christian Porter, along with his lawyer, have been ordered to pay more than $430,000 
in legal costs, Tom. Yeah, so these are the costs of Joe Dyer, who's a friend of the woman who accused Christian Porter of raping her more than 30 years ago. So Joe Dyer won a court order to prevent Porter's high-profile barrister from acting for him, uh, successfully arguing that the barrister had a conflict of interest because she'd previously advised Dyer about the rape allegations that Porter denies, um, and that was in relation to another matter. So this is pretty messy, and this massive legal bill will land on top of um, the other bill Christian Porter had to pay for his action against the ABC, which was rumoured to be over half a million dollars, and that was the one that was paid by an unnamed donor or donors through a trust. Yeah, look, this is something that has uh, been dogging Christian Porter for the last year. Um, he says that he won't contest the next election, um, and he is due to hold an appeal on this latest ruling to be held on April 20. Yeah, I guess some more legal costs might be racked up there. To overseas news now, and tensions in Ukraine continue to escalate with Germany saying that it might stop the opening of a key Russian gas pipeline if Russia invades Ukraine. We stand by all aspects of this, and that includes that it is clear that there will be high costs and everything has to be discussed if there is a military intervention against Ukraine. German Chancellor Olaf Schulz there there's currently over 100,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's borders and they're scheduled to conduct uh, military exercises next month. It's a pretty hectic situation. The Kremlin's repeatedly called for NATO to rule out Ukraine joining its alliance, but NATO refuses to do that. And while this is going on, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is planning to hold high-level talks with Russia in Geneva um, on Friday, tomorrow, in a bid to avert the disaster. So, yeah, lots of talks, demands, threats and troops, which is not a great combo, is it, Jen? No, it sure isn't. International airlines, including Emirates and Air India, have cancelled or changed flights to the USA due to the deployment of 5G mobile phone technology near airports. The FAA is uncomfortable with the safety risk. And as a consequence, the impact on our operations to mitigate that would be a significant setback. That's American Southwestern Airlines CEO Gary Kelly. So 5G signals, um, they say, could interfere with radio altimeters, um, which measure how high a plane is in the sky, which is a crucial piece of equipment, um, particularly when landing in bad weather. So AT&T and Verizon, two wireless carriers, have paused the 5G rollout at certain airports as a result of these concerns. Yeah, Boeing sent out a notice saying that 5G signals could interfere with their radio altimeters um, as well, particularly on their 777 planes. Despite that, though, Qantas, obviously our national airline, um, is satisfied that it's safe to fly uh, their Boeing 787s into LA as well as their A380 aircraft. So no changes there for us. And they say that this issue um, won't be a problem here in Australia because we use a, a lower frequency range. All right, we'll catch you later, Jen. Uh, Katrina's going to join me for an interview about the one-year anniversary of Biden's inauguration. Uh, how's he going so far? Good, bad, ugly? Um, our guest is Damien Cave. He works for the New York Times. He's their Australian bureau chief based in Sydney. All right, let's get into the briefing. Damien Cave, thank you so much for joining us again on the briefing. So we're one year in for Joe Biden. 
How does his polling look compared to Donald Trump at this stage of his presidency? Well, you know, it doesn't look good for Biden, that's for sure. I think that a lot of people who were, you know, really excited when he came in, you know, after Trump anticipated that uh, the sort of wave of the honeymoon would last a lot longer than it has. And so the polling is is pretty mediocre, frankly. You know, Trump kind of muddled along. And Biden is also kind of muddling along at this point as well. I mean, it's just a sign of how divided the country really is. Is it also a sign that um, Biden made some really big commitments on things that can't be changed quickly? Things like COVID, which I guess he was making some big promises on before the Delta wave hit, climate change, you know, racial justice. Is it almost impossible for him to deliver on those promises? I think that's definitely true for sort of the progressive and, and kind of liberal wing of the Democratic Party. They did have high expectations and he did have big promises. But I do think it kind of goes beyond that. I think Americans are just really exhausted and fatigued in general and just have low expectations. And so I don't think they necessarily really felt like Biden was going to totally transform the country on climate change. They may have thought COVID would fade by now. And there's sort of this kind of inchoate anger and frustration, I think, in the country that is being directed towards Biden, even among people who I think recognize that it's not totally rational. It's this weird kind of moment where the politics are reflecting a kind of low hum of frustration and the guy in the White House inevitably kind of takes the backlash from that. Yeah, has that division in America changed? Because we, I guess we saw it through the the prism of the Trump narrative that the, the working class voters had been disenfranchised, sort of left behind by the Democrats who'd focused too much on sort of white collar or middle class voters. Has that underlying division and, and tension changed at all? You know, I think of it sometimes as a fever and it just doesn't feel like it's broken. You know, the divisions that were there, you think of sort of Trump as being the the sort of pinnacle of that. But the reality is that Trump was kind of the symptom of this larger set of divisions and anger and frustration. And it goes far beyond class. There are issues of identity. There are issues of just where people live and people living in communities that are almost entirely among people who feel the same way. You know, the way COVID has sort of gone has just created even more sharp divisions. You know, it just kind of feels like the fever, not only hasn't it not broken, it seems to be intensifying, frankly. And that's something that I think the country is yet to figure out how to fix and how to break through. Biden presented himself as a unifier, as a calm, rational force, but he's leading a country that is neither calm nor rational at this point. Let's go back to COVID. Now, Biden came in promising he would handle it way better than Trump and and painting Trump as a failure on COVID. But then Delta hit. (laughs) Um, There are now around a million new cases a day. Deaths are significantly lower, thankfully. What is the mood around COVID in America and what do Americans want from President Biden? You know, I think they just want the government to be clear and direct and competent. And the CDC has at various times gone back and forth on its messaging. And so there's a lot of frustration around just the policy people who are supposed to know better. You know, there's been huge debates about schools and whether or not children should go or teachers are sort of resisting that. So there's a lot of things that are kind of a level below the president, but inevitably he gets blamed for that. I think Americans basically, like everyone in the world, just want this damn thing to be over. And if it's not going to be over, they They want their government to try and at least give them some very clear advice on how to handle it and how to manage it. And that's proved to be extremely difficult. COVID is COVID. It's continuing to move through every place. And the need to kind of endure is just kind of running up against the political frustration of, oh, my gosh, this government that was supposed to take care of us can't even figure out what it needs for us to do. 
So, Damien, there's so many issues we often think shape elections or, or things that we think a lot of people care about, but so often it comes back to the economy. So the economic issue consuming the most headlines, at least, is inflation in America running at 7%, which is a 40-year high. Now, this creates two big issues. One is inflation itself and, you know, reduced spending power for average Americans who are already doing it tough. Um, the other one is that interest rates will start going up soon, which could really hurt American mortgage holders. So how concerned are Americans right now about inflation and what does it mean for Biden? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I think that that is probably the dominant issue that is keeping people concerned in addition to COVID is this idea that life is getting more and more expensive. And not only is it getting more expensive, you've got all these supply chain issues. So even if you want to spend money, you can't necessarily get what you need or what you want anyways. This is a kind of frustration that affects everyone. Politically, that's a real risk for Biden. And if he, you know, initially, I think the Biden administration thought, oh, this is just going to go away after a little while. You know, this is just sort of this COVID bottleneck. And that's proven not to be the case. I mean, now the leading economists are basically saying, okay, this is continuing. And now you're going to head into the 2022 midterms with people really concerned about their purchasing power. And so it is supermarket shelves. I do think that matters probably more than the interest rates, but the interest rates are slowly going to come in too. And that's going to affect people again. And so it's a major issue. I mean, I think it's probably the top or second or third issue for Americans as they go, you know, and think about politics this year. You've also got the uh, the Trump factor. How much of a threat is Trump still and how should Biden be handling that threat? He's definitely a threat. He's definitely the kingmaker within the Republican Party. The entire Congress, except for a handful of people, you know, have now sort of jumped on board with his whole idea of the big lie that he actually won when he didn't. That is a serious problem, not just for Biden, but for the country as a whole. But it's not clear kind of where this is going to go. I mean, it's whether or not he runs again. He has a lot of control now. It doesn't mean that the country is necessarily up for another round of Trump exhaustion and, and Trump, you know, just craziness, frankly. So there, there is a great amount of fatigue, I think, with the kind of government that he ran. And for a lot of people, it's more about identifying with some of the ideas that Trump said. I mean, there's even divisions. You know, Trump has suddenly become very pro-vaccine because he developed the vaccines, he believes, and there was a lot of progress during his administration. And now he has this whole base that's completely anti-vaccination. And so there's a whole lot of divisions within the Republican side that threaten to kind of break things down and maybe not create the same amount of momentum that we had last time he ran. Should we talk about uh, Biden's age? He's going to turn 80 this year. At the beginning, it was made, um, you know, his age and, and him, you know, falling asleep, resting his eyes and, and having a bit of verbal diarrhea was kind of made a big thing of. How is he holding up now? And are there some legitimate worries he's not coping with the demands of the job? There's definitely some legitimate worries. And I think even just, uh, you know, among those who are Biden supporters, there is a sort of constant, you're, you're, you know, watching of him to make sure that he's OK. While those who, you know, maybe had some questions before, I mean, I have family members who were very conservative, who are convinced that he's completely got dementia and is completely out of it. And so, you know, that narrative will continue to be the case and will continue to kind of shape perceptions of him. And I do think it affects his poll numbers. I think, you know, it's very hard for him to create a sense of excitement when a lot of people are just hoping he can kind of maintain enough energy to keep going. It's an issue. It's a low level issue, but it's definitely an issue that shapes perceptions for him. But is it just perception or is there a real problem there? It's very hard to tell. I mean, people I know who work closely with him say he's completely on the mark and, you know, he's sharp as ever. 
And, you know, some of the speeches that he gives, you know, you have to remember that he's somebody who stuttered as a child. He's always been someone who kind of spouted crazy things and said things. I mean, when I was a correspondent in Mexico and he used to come through, he was sort of known to be the one who would be very unpredictable in whatever he said. And so, you know, I don't think that he's changed so much as tried to sort of manage that a little bit better in a position that's higher stress and higher level of visibility. There are concerns and it's very hard to sort of tell. I mean, if you remember Ronald Reagan, when he was president, you know, had serious issues that were hidden from the country until after he left. And so in this moment, I think it's actually really hard to know what his capacity really is behind the scenes. In the lead up to the last um, US presidential election, we spoke to an Aussie correspondent who'd been traveling around the Midwest. And he told us something really surprising that abortion was a major election issue and that kind of surprised us here because we don't truly understand how divisive this is in America and how much it plays into politics. So there are now concerns that the Supreme Court might overturn Roe versus Wade, a key piece of legislation that essentially determines abortion policy around America. What's happening in this space? Could this be a big factor coming up in America? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Supreme Court has basically made it a lot easier for states to deny people abortions and to basically create a culture where you have to cross state lines to get abortions. And this has been an issue in American life since the 70s when Roe versus Wade, which was the case that legalized abortion, was ruled on by the Supreme Court. And especially for Democratic activists, this is a really, really big deal. It's a sign for them that, you know, the Supreme Court has gone far, far too conservative. It's creating demands for any Democratic candidate to say that they will add members to the court to dilute that conservative nature. This is a real mobilization factor for Democrats. And, um, you know, it's possible that for Republicans, this is something they've been trying to win for a very, very long time. And they're really on the cusp of it. I mean, if they do this, this will actually go down as one of the number one or number two things that Trump's legacy will cover. You know, he packed that Supreme Court with the people who killed off Roe v. Wade. That would be a really, really big deal. And so it will shape politics. And it just, again, contributes to the fact that, you know, female voters in particular are very, very incensed about this. And so you're talking about mobilizing half of all America on this issue. Certainly for you, a really interesting and juicy time to be covering politics. What do you think is going to happen at the midterms? And how do you think this is all going to play out? You know, the midterms traditionally, you know, basically the party that's not in power tends to win. And this time around, you've got a whole bunch of issues with voting rights. The Republicans have done a really good job in a way that's, I think, scares a lot of Americans, frankly, to change the maps of districts, to create systems that make it harder for people to vote so that, you know, mail-in voting is a lot harder this time around. And so I think it's going to be the first election where you really start to see some of those structural issues play a large role It'll be a preview of 2024 in the presidential race. And I think it's likely that the Republicans are going to do well. And then it's going to set us off into a whole nother round of really intense feverish politics between now and 2024. That was Damien Cave, who is the Australian Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Yeah, what stood out to me was him saying that a lot of those divisions that we saw in America over the last four or five years under the Trump administration are still there. Because for me, it feels like the temperature has been dialed down a little bit on a lot of those extreme tensions, mainly because Donald Trump's not there sort of stoking the fire. But maybe that's just a perception thing and and the way it looks as you sort of read the media articles from the other side of the world and, and underneath that, all of those 
tensions and divisions in society are still really red hot. Definitely, I think the perception when you're not seeing Trump on social media every single day and he's not in that daily news cycle, it can definitely seem like maybe things have calmed down, but Mm. on the ground it'll be so interesting to see what happens in those midterms. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, COVID chases. Should you be going to a party deliberately trying to catch COVID? Listener.